Yeah, I mean, I've, I've always felt just even on a personal level that it's questionable to say the least that you, you should be able to go into a local supermarket and buy a product and that it's perfectly legal for that product to be sold to you that's knowingly or is contaminated with a uh, you know bacteria that could ultimately prove fatal or, or make you very sick indeed. I mean, it wouldn't be tolerated in any other setting from what I can see. But it's, I think what's happened is it certainly at one point it was becoming almost routine that people would go into a supermarket, buy a meat product, and it would be contaminated with a potentially fatal food poisoning bacteria. There's just something on a personal level I, I think is, is, is quite scandalous about that. The global food system is facing unparalleled challenges and changes. So how can we reset for a better, more sustainable future? Introducing Control-Alt-Meat, the weekly podcast that explores the issues transforming the global food business. I'm your host, Katie Briefel. Come join me as I speak to the innovators and investors, policymakers and product developers, the scientists and the chefs, who are all on the front line reshaping the future of our food. This week's episode of Control-Alt-Meat is with Andrew Wosley an investigative journalist who specialises in food production and how it contributes to environmental problems. He is a member of the not-for-profit Bureau of Investigative Journalism, an organisation that firmly believes in the vital role of investigative journalism in keeping a strong democracy. Andrew is also the author of The Ecologist Guide to Food, where he talks about the dark side of the food we eat, with stories involving animal suffering, the destruction of ecosystems, pollution and human rights abuses. Andrew joins me today to discuss how food industries are contributing to antibiotic resistance and creating superbugs. He describes his investigative work and how his research changed the way people perceive the food they eat and explains why regulation is not always practical when it comes to preserving our natural resources. Andrew also shares facts about antibiotic overuse, its long and short-term consequences. Andrew, you have done some incredible research into the challenges we're facing with deforestation and antimicrobial resistance. Before we dive into that, how did you get started in this space and what has driven your work in this area? Yeah, well, I've, I mean, one way or another, I've, I've spent, you know, the best part of the last two decades investigating food issues and that intersection of food and environment issues. And in particular, looking at a lot of the impacts of sort of industrial food production and intensive farming. And initially, that was quite focused on sort of animal welfare and cruelty issues. That then evolved into looking more at some of the environmental impacts of, of sort of big meat and big ag. Um, along the way, also investigated quite a lot some of the, the human health issues arising from this industry, looking at, you know, food safety, um, the overuse of antibiotics or the, the misuse of antibiotics in, in food supply chains. And I think, you know, in, in all of that time, sort of interest and focus on this as an area has really grown internationally. I think it's fair to say sort of 15, 20 years ago, sure, there was people, you know, talking about these issues, pressure groups, scientists, experts, um, but I don't think there was a sort of mainstream public discussion happening. But I think for a variety of reasons over the past two decades, we've, we've seen this area shoot up the agenda, you know, both, both sort of socially uh, culturally, um, but also politically. And I think, you know, the, the, the risks that we now face from, from climate change on the one hand, um, 
plus you know what we've just seen with this this devastating pandemic that's that's just happened i think it's it's really focused people to think about perhaps some of the the consequences of, of of the way we farm and the way we eat and it feels like this conversation has sort of you know it, it's time has come and it, it really now is on the mainstream sort of political agenda globally or certainly should be. Absolutely. And starting with deforestation, I think because of what's been happening with the COVID crisis recently, and that has dominated rightly the, the news, um, it's kind of hidden the fact that I read that um, deforestation has jumped by 64% compared with the same month last year. I think that was reported in June, which is, you know, scary and unbelievable. I'd love for you to talk a little bit about what you're finding in your recent research in deforestation at the moment. Yeah, certainly. I mean, the the, the Bureau um, of Investigative Journalism has, has, has sort of been on this beat now for, for about three years. And we've really focused in on some of the drivers of deforestation in Brazil specifically, um, you know, looking at some of the, the big companies and some of those global supply chains that are, are, are driving this forest loss, uh, both in the Amazon, which has become globally iconic because of its importance, but also the, the Cerrado, which is a slightly lesser known um, area of Brazil. I mean, there's several leading drivers for this. There's not one single thing. But what has become clear from our work is that two commodities in particular have repeatedly been linked to, to deforestation in Brazil. One is the, uh, the international supply chains linked to soy, which is increasingly used as, as livestock feed globally, particularly for, for livestock that are farmed and held intensively. Um, and the second is, is the global trade in beef. I mean, just to put some figures on this, our research has shown that in 2018, um, for example, you know, the Brazilian soy exports were linked to something like 500 square kilometres of deforestation in Brazil. And the beef trade annually... Um, according to some research, could be responsible for as much as 5,800 square kilometres of, of uh, deforestation annually. I mean, these are big, big areas and big sums. Um, but I think what perhaps few people until relatively recently realised is that quite a lot of that is driven by, you know, the consumption of, of these goods um, or products, you know, reliance on these goods globally. So there is a direct connection between this destruction in, in Brazil and indeed in other parts of, of South America, but Brazil in particular, and sort of everyday food items that people are consuming uh, here in the West and also globally. Yes, and you did a, um, an expose into the companies that are directly linked to this deforestation, companies like Walmart and Costco. And I think people are starting to realise how widespread and, and I guess close to their own daily habits is sort of this deforestation. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, well, one piece of work that we did highlighted how the UK had um, purchased something like £1 billion uh, worth of beef from, from firms that were linked to Amazon deforestation. That was over a number of years. Um, but I think it sort of points towards the, the involvement of, of UK supermarkets and others in sort of driving this destruction. I think that came as a surprise to many people. When you widen that out and look at across Europe, I think the, the figure went up consi considerably and that highlighted the, you know, the links between what's happening in Brazil and sort of people's dinner plates here. Absolutely. And a lot of people will read this and they, and they sort of start pledging to reduce their beef consumption or their meat consumption. But when you look at, for example, the impact of palm oil, um, which is also contributing to this deforestation. And then the amount of sort of, I think it was 50% of supermarket 
packaged goods have palm oil on it, it starts to make you think even reducing your meat isn't really going to make a big difference. And then often people cite um, soy as a reason why going plant-based doesn't actually make a difference in these in this way. I mean, what would you say to that? Is it is it a meat thing or is it you know a, a much bigger, wider problem than that? Yeah, I mean, in the in the case of soy particularly, it's often suggested that you know it's it's the sort of the plant-based diets or vegetarianism that might be sort of driving the the problem or contributing to the problem but i think it's worth remembering that globally you know the vast majority of of soy exports um are destined for use as livestock feed um Mm. rather than as direct sort of human foodstuffs and i think it's that indirect route that people are beginning to sort of take notice of, and certainly policymakers and others are beginning to recognise. And yeah, sure, soy is used in in some um, direct human foodstuffs too, but the majority, like I say, goes it goes for use as animal feed, um, which ultimately is then turned into, you know, meat for for human consumption. So that's by far the bigger driver. And you've you've produced a piece of work recently um, into deforestation in Brazil. I'd love for you to talk about this this new piece of work? Yeah, we, we, this was a, a joint investigation um, with Greenpeace Unearthed. And as I think a lot of people are aware, you know, the Amazon now is, you know, for the, for, for the last decade and longer has been um, seen increased protection via a mechanism known as the soil moratorium, um, which is really designed to protect the rainforest from being destroyed for, for soil production. Um, but what our investigation highlighted is that how, because of some loopholes in the, the, the mechanism uh, around that moratorium, uh, some farmers can continue to, to fell areas of rain, rainforest, but still be free to, to sell soya into the supply chains of, you know, as we demonstrated, international companies, which then you know, that soil is then, you know, used on factory farms, et cetera, globally. Uh, and I think what it did, it, it raised questions about the, the robustness of some of the regulations and some of the mechanisms that are in place to protect the Amazon. And perhaps more importantly, highlighted how some of these big companies are still circumnavigating um, the rules on this, or certainly the spirit of the rules. Mm. And, you know, we, what we were able to show was that, you know, what's known as so-called dirty soy, linked to deforestation was finding itself in so-called clean supply chains. Um, and that sort of contaminates the playing field um, and does raise questions about just how seriously some of these big ag companies are taking this problem. Could you explain how that works or how it, it gets taken into clean supply chains? Yeah, what happens is the, the regulations or rather the mechanism at the moment, which is the, the soil moratorium, it allows companies to keep trading with farmers that have been caught illegally felling rainforest as long as the specific soil is shown to have originated on other farmland that is not linked to deforestation. So if a farm has different plots of land, uh, if on one bit of, of, of farm, you know, there's been illegal deforestation, he will be sort of sanctioned for that and there's possibly uh, a government embargo placed on that bit of land. But if he has another so-called clean bit of uh, land, um, there's nothing to stop soya from that bit of land being traded with third parties, which then ultimately can supply, you know, some of these big soy traders. Um, and it's sort of, it's a loophole that's been known about, but I don't think it's been illustrated before. Um, so I think that's raised some some cons- considerable concerns in 
in some quarters. As it seems, regulation needs to be significantly more stringent to, to be able to have an effect we want. And we've seen a lot of debate around the UK Environment Bill recently and a lot of uh, critics saying it, it doesn't really have much teeth. What are your thoughts on this? Yeah, I'm aware there's been a lot of debate and conversation on this. I think one of the principal areas of concern is that you know, the, the legislation as it was introduced uh, or proposed was only going to focus on illegal deforestation, which is great. That's a, you know, I think a lot of people would accept that's a good step in the right direction. But because of all sorts of, you know, multitude of reasons, quite a lot of deforestation that can be shown to be in some of these international supply chains is actually perfectly legal. And I think in the form that this legislation was initially proposed and introduced, uh, that wouldn't be taken into account, which potentially leaves the door open for you know, beef, soy and other commodities linked to deforestation still flooding into Europe and into the UK without, you know, without a, a regulatory mechanism for, for, for calling out those responsible. I think that's one of the principal concerns that I've heard from campaigners and others who are taking close interest in this. But I believe that may be subject to being tightened up. And so do you believe that regulation is probably the best way forward if we can get these these tightened up, that's the best way that we can try and solve this issue? Or do you think it lies in investors or do you think it lies with consumers? Like how do you see this actually improving? I think, you know, much tougher regulation certainly has a part to play. But I think you're right to also suggest that investors um, and finance has a part to play. You know, we've seen over the past 18 months an increasing and longer an increasing interest and focus on this area from from big investors globally in some of these companies. And I think that's an area that moving ahead is going to be quite pivotal in terms of actually stamping out some of these bad practices in global supply chains, because ultimately it comes down to risk. Mm. And I think where investors sense there's risks within their supply chains, uh, particularly where there's large amounts of money invested, I think that's going to be a a real pinch point and we're, we're starting to see evidence that some investors are saying that we need to really crack down on, on some of the problems, you know, that might be further down the supply chain. Because um, ultimately, if there's risks in terms of environmental damage or, or antibiotic resistance or, or other issues that could affect the, the return that people get on those investments. So I think this is going to be an area really to be watching um, this year and well beyond. But to what extent do you think investors feel that um, downside is enough versus the immediate economic gain of, um, of taking that land for creating things like palm oil, which we know is, is highly important to the economy? Yeah, sure. I mean, look, people invest money in, in these industries um, and sectors to make money. I mean, we can't get away from that. And a lot of these companies are, are financed considerably with, with, with money from investment houses, banks and so on. But I do think, you know, we really are seeing a bit of a sea change. Even some of the world's biggest, you know, investors in these, these sectors are beginning to make noises about the climate emergency that's unfolding. And I really do think that will trickle down and we will start to see a much more concerted effort to, to start to draw up, um, you know, principles and action points on these areas. And that may take some time, but I do think it, things are moving in the right direction there. And in November this year, we have COP26. Looking ahead to that conference, what are you hopeful is going to be achieved and, and what do you want to put pressure on um, the attendees to really focus on this, yeah. I think, you know, the, the COP26, it, you know, a lot of people are saying it's the sort of point of no return after this in terms of the climate emergency. And I think it, 
it offers an opportunity for, you know, pledges to actually be made and action to be taken that really will, you know, start to stem the climate emergency. There is a lot of concern that despite the rhetoric, despite the, the sort of spin around this, the role of livestock production and intensive farming and its contribution to the sort of climate crisis may still not get the airing it needs. Um, because it is a big, big issue, particularly when it comes to the sort of deforestation footprint of commodities such as soy and beef. So I think that, you know, that area, um, if things are going to be successful, really does need some attention. We saw in the recent G7 summit a lot of critics saying that the commitments and pledges didn't go far enough. Are you concerned the same thing's going to happen at COP26? I think there's a there's there's always a risk that some of these key issues will not get the airing they need, not get the debate, and thus ultimately not not perhaps be you know tackled enough. But I think you know there is a there's enough information out there about the contribution of of food and livestock production and and meat production that you know I think there's a there's a good chance that this stuff could get the airing it needs and may sort of be taken into account as some of these these pledges and action moving forward from, from COP26 begin to take shape. And moving on to your work to do with the overuse of antibiotics, I'd love for you to talk about your recent research and what you think are the major pressing problems in this space at the moment. Yeah, what had happened, the, the Bureau has recently returned to, to examining this issue of uh, antibiotic resistance um, and the spread of superbugs, particularly in relation to industrial food production. And what we found was, despite considerable reductions in antibiotic use in UK livestock sectors in recent years, including the, the poultry sector and the pig sector, we found following a tip-off that the pig sector's uses of a particular class of antibiotics, which are classified as critically important to human health, had actually increased over a five-year period now, this raised a number of concerns around the potential impacts on human health. So I think some people were quite surprised by that. Um, we also established that some of these drugs were in use on supermarket supplying pig farms, in particular pig farms that were found to be supplying Tesco and Waitrose. So that sort of highlights that this, these practices aren't sort of confined to just a sort of the odd small scale producer that's slightly off the radar. You know, this, this, these drugs are being used in quite a syst systematic way in, in some farms on in some farms that are supplying supermarket. What we also found during the same investigation was evidence on some farms of apparently routine use of different antibiotics and so-called mass medications. So there was there was evidence on one pig farm of pretty much the entire herd of pigs. Um, being dosed up with a certain type of antibiotics three times in one month-long period. And wow. these are exactly the sorts of concerns that experts have been saying, these are the sorts of practices we really need to be addressing if, if we want to sort of combat the risk of antibiotic resistance. And is there any regulation around this at the moment? Are, pe are people, is this legal at the moment? This, yeah, it's this... all perfectly legal. And that, that, I mean, that's important to stress. And actually the UK you know, has made great strides in, in, in tackling this issue. It's way ahead of, of, of many other countries. Uh, and in the UK, the use of these drugs is quite tightly regulated um, by both legislation and also industry um, protocols, which are voluntary, but are, are pretty much um, embedded now in most sort of big supply chains. I think what, what our, our evidence showed was, particularly in the pig sector, 
it's quite difficult to completely you know tackle this problem because of some quite intensive production systems that are in place and i think that's something that the pig sector struggled with perhaps more than than some other sectors so are we saying that when animals are farmed more intensely that's when they you you over rely on these antibiotics if we reverted to less factory farming that issue might not be as big well, I think where you've got a large amount of animals confined, sometimes permanently in, in, you know, in a sort of close proximity, it's sort of common sense that if disease takes hold, it will spread much, much faster. And there's certainly practices in the intensive pig sector that have been shown to exacerbate you know, some disease risks. For example, in, in intensive farms, piglets are weaned much earlier um, than in some non-intensive systems and that can cause something known as piglet scour or diarrhea or post-weaning scour. And that is often treated with antibiotics. And critics would say, well, if, if you reduce that early weaning of piglets, you could probably go a long way to reducing the antibiotics footprint. Um, so that's just one example. But there's certainly, you know, there's, there's evidence to show that intensive systems um, do use more antibiotics than higher welfare stroke organic standards and so on. Yeah. And sort of taking a step away from the UK, it's been shown that sort of last chance antibiotics are being put into um, animal rearing in Asia. And to, to the extent that scientists are really alarmed and, and concerned about that, how, how large do you think that problem is at the moment? Well, I think that's right. I think what's happened is, and as I say, I think in the UK and across Europe, um, in, in many cases, there has been a concerted effort to reduce the overuse of antibiotics in livestock production and in food production. But we have seen problems emerging in other parts of the world, particularly as intensive farming systems spread and are increasingly adopted across parts of Asia, across Latin America, even across Africa. And I think those, those sort of areas really need to be you know, closely monitored for the development of, of potential superbugs and antibiotic-resistant bacteria, partly because perhaps there isn't the, you know, the political sort of focus on this issue. And in some cases, um, there's potentially less, um, less regulation. You know, these, some of these markets are less regulated. So I think that's a, there's a risk there that needs to be monitored carefully. And how would we go about trying to stem this, this trend and this tide of um, using these critical sort of last resort antibiotics? I think ultimately, um, a lot of it's going to come down to rolling back on some of the most intensive um, livestock production techniques and, and systems that we're seeing sort of pop up globally. Ultimately, it's going to be quite difficult to completely eliminate or reduce satisfactorily the use of antibiotics whilst those most intensive systems continue. Um, so I think there there's, you know, action needed at a policy level, at a regulatory level, and also from, I guess, in, you know, in large parts of the world from consumer demand too. I think people are increasingly concerned about the, some of these sort of hidden impacts of, of cheap meat and other products. So I think sort of just making people aware of the risks, you know, has an important part to play. Yes, because it's it's the less developed countries that will inevitably suffer when antibiotics um, start becoming um, unusable, right? And we're already starting to see that happening in some countries in Africa, for example, um, where you know certain procedures aren't able to take place. Yeah, that's right. And I think you know we we need to remember that you know the the, the biggest driver of antibiotic resistance has been the the use and overuse of antibiotics in human healthcare. But increasingly, the role of 
of drug use in, in meat production and food production is being, you know, recognized as an additional driver to that. Um, and as I say, as, as farming systems that are, well, certainly traditionally were quite reliant on antibiotics are sort of rolled out and expand globally. You know, that's really going to need to be examined and, and sort of monitored very carefully indeed. And how can we start to maybe connect the dots better for consumers? Because I, I suppose if people understood how serious this antibiotics issue was, they would maybe change their action. What, what do you think is the best way to try and affect change? I think, I, I mean, in the UK, I think the, the, the various regulatory agencies and the government at large has done quite a good job at, at sort of getting some of the messaging around this out. I mean, if you go to a doctor's surgery now, it's, there's usually some sort of posters and literature talking about the threat of antibiotic resistance and how it's important to, to finish treatments you're given, not to ask for antibiotics for a common cold. I think at a very basic level, people are aware there's a problem with antibiotics. I think, I think where there's perhaps a lack of awareness still is, is the role that food production can play in this, in this risk and this threat. So I think there's a, there's a job as, as, as us, as the media, to, to sort of highlight this problem and highlight where problems are happening and what the impacts could be. Um, but then I think there's also a, a role, a further role for governments and others to, to play in, you know, acting on that. And I think a really important part of this is, you know, in our most recent work, we highlighted how some supermarket supply chains were still permitting use of, of some antibiotics that have been classified as critically important to human health. I think those big retailers have a responsibility to address some of these issues and perhaps insist on much higher standards and insist on um, production systems that are perhaps less reliant on antibiotics in the first place. Do you think it should be made clearer to consumers via things like labelling and, pack and um, packaging information so that people are more aware of it? Or I think that, you know, labelling can certainly play a part in all this. I mean, we have a whole plethora of, you know, um, labelling and certification schemes, whether it's fair trade, it's organic, red tractor. I, th I, th I think there's a risk if we start introducing more, people just become overwhelmed and then switch off from it. So I think there's certainly in relation to antibiotic use, it might be, it might not actually be the most effective way of, of sort of conveying this stuff to consumers. But it certainly would be interesting to look at that. So, Andrew, on um, antibiotics overuse, what does this mean? How big is this problem, and what um, what are the consequences of us continuing to overuse antibiotics? Certainly, I mean, a, a major review on um, AMR antibiotic resistance, which was actually commissioned by the um, the David Cameron government in the UK um, and chaired by Lord Jim O'Neill. I mean, that estimated that superbugs currently kill around 700,000 people worldwide, um, but also warned that that could rise to 10 million extra deaths by 2050 if no action is taken. Now, these figures have been disputed by some, but as there's no global surveillance system for resistant infections, um, particularly with laboratory facilities and sort of investment in this area in some countries quite poor, Finding the true possible is 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 not trying. Finding the true figure is, is is almost impossible. But certainly, that warning has been you know taken quite seriously uh, and is regarded as 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 quite sound by by many people. So that gives us a sense of the scale of the problem. And sure, a large part of that is not is not being driven by farm use of antibiotics. It's the it's the human use and overuse. Um, but, you know, the role of, of meat and food production is, is certainly in there. 
And as the, the growth of the middle class in sort of developing countries increases and therefore the desire to eat um, animal meat increases with that, to what extent do we need to start rethinking the way that we, um, the food system and, and our consumption of meat at all so that we can try and reverse this trend? I think overall what, what's becoming clear and what our work in the last you know, few years has highlighted is that the, the current nature of the global meat industry um, particularly where you have, you know, concentration with, you know, in the hands of, you know, quite a small number of huge companies is increasingly problematic. And I think, you know, the, the nature of modern global supply chains where we might be importing animal feed from South America to feed supposedly British chickens, which mm. are then sort of, you know, sent out to retailers and fast food outlets. I think, you know, some of this stuff needs to be thought about and reconsidered in light of both the sort of climate emergency that we have, but also in terms of, of antibiotic use and overuse. I think all, all of these hidden impacts of, of sort of big ag or big meat, as it's increasingly being called, really do need to start being addressed at both policy and the regulatory level and also a consumer awareness level. And to what extent do you think encouraging a shift towards lab-grown meat, for example, could help with this? Because if the desire to eat meat-like products is still going to be there, do you think offering this alternative could help? Yeah, I mean, look, there's certainly, uh, this is a hugely contentious area, there's certainly um, people who are, are attempting to make quite a, a convincing case for lab-grown meat and plant-based foods. And sure, I think there's a, there's a role um, for that in combating some of these problems. But I also think it's important to remember that it's it's not sort of meat per se that's necessarily bad. It's the way in which it's produced. You know, there's a lot of good examples, particularly in the UK, of, of, of grass-fed livestock, for example, which ultimately some studies and some experts have shown, you know, is actually quite good for the environment, particularly in terms of, of grass-fed cattle. So I think it's, it's the problem is that this, this issue has become very polarised between the sort of people saying the whole world needs to go vegan and then the people saying, well, no, we need to sort of just eat as much meat as we can. And I think like so many things, the, the, the sort of perfect point is somewhere in between the two. And your work is often, um, it seems like it could be quite pessimistic looking at the scale of the problems that we're facing at the moment. But have you seen any positive change or responses as a result of the investigations that you have conducted or the, the research you've revealed? Yeah, we've certainly seen, um, I think there's, there's two ways that change happens on the back of this stuff. To start with, obviously, you had the sort of awareness raising, you know, when stories are big and they're, they're on the television and in the newspapers, you know, that it, it helps raise awareness and people sort of sit up and begin to take notice. But as I mentioned earlier, we are starting to see, you know, investors in some of these big meat companies beginning to question whether their, their investments in, in specific entities is perhaps sustainable any longer and beginning to say, actually, we really do need to sort of clean up some of this, some of these problems if we're going to continue to, to sort of pump money into these sectors. So I think certainly our workers has, I think, been instrumental in, in starting some of those conversations. And we've, we've even seen the, the work cited in, you know, some big banks such as H, HSBC when they're conducting, conducting their sort of risk analysis for their investments in, in some of these players have begun to sort of cite some of these investigations um, in their own sort of intelligence reports. And in, in doing so, 
begin to sort of highlight how those investments might be on quite shaky ground in terms of meeting their sort of ethical lending criteria and so on. I mean, there's a long, long, long way to go with this for sure. But I think we are beginning to get these. I think this journalism and these stories are helping get some of this onto the entrees of people who perhaps 10, 15 years ago weren't really aware or, to be honest, weren't really interested in. Absolutely. And I'd love to hear a little bit about the process behind your investigations. Um, for those who are less familiar with how investigative journalism works, could you talk about your process and, and how you put these research findings together? Yeah, sure. I mean, it's it's there's no sort of one hard and fast way in which they happen. I mean, it, it's because we've been on this this strand for some time, and I personally have been on it for some time, you know, quite a few stories do sort of come to us via way of tip-offs or whistleblowers or documents that are leaked to us and so on, and then provide the starting point. But quite often, once the decision is made to look at a particular area, a very early starting point is to gather um, existing data sets um, or build, build new data sets so we can sort of show the systemic nature of problems. Um, I mean, going back a few years when we began to look at what was happening in abattoirs, particularly in the UK, it was accepted that there'd been a lot of specific undercover investigations where activist groups and sometimes the media had sort of penetrated a particular abattoir and shown bad conditions, whether that was animal cruelty or food safety issues. But what we did was start to look at that from a data point of view. So we gathered data on inspections for all UK abattoirs using freedom of information requests or other sources. And that actually highlighted the perhaps more systemic nature of, of animal welfare issues. We did the same with food safety breaches. And then following on from that, the same um, looking at sort of labour abuse issues and sort of abuse of government vets and so on. So it's about sort of trying to build a more systemic picture of what's happening rather than just focusing on one company or one particular entity. And I mean, it's good people do that, but what happens is quite often it's then written off as just a bad apple rather mm. than a sort of a wider problem. It needs policy change. Yeah, and sure, that approach is something we've sort of carried through to the environmental issue as well, although we may use a particular case study in Brazil to highlight how soy is being growing on deforested land and then exported to Europe or wherever. We also gather data and work with partners who have that data to show you know, the cumulative overall deforestation that could be linked to that, that particular commodity. So again, it's not just about one bad farm and one bad supply chain. We're able to actually demonstrate that this is a much bigger issue because ultimately it's that that sparks the political interest and the policy interest and ultimately can spark change. Absolutely. And the findings in your abattoir research were shocking. Would you mind just talking a little bit about, um, about that work and what you found? Yeah, I mean, there was a whole series of work on... Um, abattoirs that we did i mean starting with with animal welfare um i forget the exact figures but i mean we showed you know a, a large amount of breaches of regulations around you know the, the handling of treatment of, of both poultry cattle pigs etc across across uk abattoirs um in some of the worst instances you know there was there was evidence that chickens were being boiled alive in in some places um, I read that there were cigarette butts being put out on pigs and things like that. I, I have heard of those cases. I'm not sure that arose directly from our work, but mm. I think there's been undercover investigations by, by some animal rights groups that may have shown such things. But certainly, you know, the, the problems with welfare in abattoirs was being increasingly recognised as an issue. And it did lead um, the government, to their credit, to introduce mandatory CCTV in many units. Um, although there's been problems with, with rollouts and some evidence gathering from that, at least that was a, it was a step in the right direction. 
that's being held up as an example of good practice, actually, to have CCTV and abattoirs, both for animal welfare and also food safety issues. Following on from, from, from the welfare scandal, we, we did take a look at more food safety standards in meat plants. And at one point, we found, I think, as many as 25% of, of abattoirs were failing a key hygiene test. That raised eyebrows and sort of sparked a, an 18-month investigation into what so was what does what does that mean um, for listeners? What, what kind of um, violations were you seeing? I think in that particular case, it was about potential for contaminated meat to reach the, reach the public because although a lot of people probably don't realise, you know, what, what happens in the abattoir can affect, you know, the quality and safety of that meat. And I think some of the breaches that we found could lead to, a, you know, serious food poisoning illnesses such as E. coli or salmonella getting into the food chain and ultimately making people sick. And so specifically, what were they doing that was um, breaking these, these rules, these regulations? I mean, there was a number of areas, but I mean, one was, I think our investigation showed that some sort of meat carcasses were sort of coming into contact with the floor. We also had uh, instances where carcass, dirty carcasses were being washed, which potentially sort of spread um, bacteria around. Fecal material is a particular issue. Uh, I mean, slaughtering can be a dirty business, but the way in which you, you sort of handle that product you know, the, the regulations are there to ensure that, you know, meat that reaches the public is, is as clean as possible and where possible is avoiding those big, those, the, the risk of disease. But some of the practices we were finding, such as meat being on the floor, meat being washed, uh, could exacerbate the, the spread of, of, of some undesirable food poisoning, um, bacteria and so on. And with that occurring in 25% of UK abattoirs, I think you said, I mean, the likelihood of that so finding its way into, I guess, supermarkets that we'd assume wouldn't be associated with those practices is pretty high, right? Yeah, I mean, there's certainly been studies that have shown that supermarket pork can contain quite high levels of, of, of some food poisoning bacteria. Uh, I mean, poultry meat's a good case in point. Six or seven years ago, you know, it was, it was becoming, there was increasingly increasing concern over the amount of chicken that was being sold that was contaminated with Compilobacter which can, you know, make you very sick indeed. That did lead to, to concerted action by both the Food Standards Agency, the government and the industry to bring those levels down. But again, bad practices, both on farms, during transport and also in the abattoirs um, were shown to be exacerbating the problem. I think a lot of work has been done to tighten up on that, but sure, there's, there's still a problem. Mm. And with major supermarkets making, um, you know, lots of pledges around um, where their food provenance and the health of their food, it, it, this is alarming that these practices are still kind of happening, even if you say that they're, they're improving. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've always felt just even on a personal level that it's questionable to say the least that you, you should be able to go into a local supermarket and buy a product and that it's perfectly legal for that product to be sold to you that's knowingly or is contaminated with a uh, you know, bacteria that could ultimately prove fatal or, or make you very sick indeed. I mean, it wouldn't be tolerated in any other setting from what I can see. But it's, I think what's happened is it certainly at one point it was becoming almost routine that people would go into a supermarket, buy a meat product, and it would be contaminated with a potentially fatal food poisoning bacteria. There's just something on a personal level I, I think is, is, is quite scandalous about that. Well, it's great that the work you're doing, you know, is manifesting in real change. So sort of starting to wrap up, what would, if you could um, give listeners one sort of takeaway or some action that they could take um, after listening to this, what would it be? 
I think ultimately it's about, you know, stopping and thinking about where, you know, your, your food is coming from and just thinking about what some of the impacts, often hidden impacts might be. You know, everybody needs to eat and everybody needs to, to shop for food. You know, everybody's got families to feed or themselves to feed. And, you know, not everyone's got lots of money to be allowed to, you know, be able to, you know, buy the sort of highest quality stuff that's on sale. But I think it's just about showing some awareness and wearing, where possible, trying to sort of buy from, buy from outlets or from, you know, shops where perhaps the traceability is a bit clearer. Absolutely. And for those who want to read more or learn more about the work that you're doing, where should they go? Uh, most of the, the the main reports are on the Bureau's website, which is the um, bureauinvestigates.com. And there's a, a section on there called Eating the Earth, which has brought together a lot of our work, both on the environmental impacts of food production, but also um, antibiotic overuse, animal cruelty and other related issues. We've obviously spoken about the problems, the risks and the challenges that we're facing. Do you, do you feel optimistic for where the industry is going and the future of the food system? And if so, what do you feel optimistic about? I have to be honest, I'm not terribly optimistic. I think we're starting to see some movement in the right direction, in particular, like I said, because we're seeing investors and governments beginning to sort of, this is now getting into the sort of policy arena and we are seeing concerns raised about investments. But the scale of the challenge and the, you know, the, the power of some of the really big companies that, that control huge swathes of our food system, I think until that's challenged, it's going to be very, very difficult to, to completely overhaul things enough to combat some of these problems. You know, but time is running out because you know, people are scientists are warning of the climate emergency that's looming. There's been warnings about the risk of the so-called sort of silent pandemic of antibiotic resistance, but there needs to be much faster action and much tougher action across the board if, if we're to sort of successfully combat these, these issues. Thank you, Andrew. It's been great having you on the podcast. Thank you for tuning in to this week's episode of Control Alt Meat. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to share your favorite episodes on social media to help us reach more listeners like you. You can also visit controlaltmeat.com to learn more.